Okay, everybody, you can turn back to Psalm 42. As you're turning there, I'll just get this technical part out of the way. Here are a few reasons why we think this is only one chapter originally, chapters 42 and 43. The, the two most important, number one, most Hebrew manuscripts have it as one chapter. Number two, it clearly splits into three parts because the same statement is repeated three times throughout these two psalms. Number three, the psalmist seems to be in the exact same place in both psalms. And number four, this, you may remember the psalms are split into five books. This is the second book of the psalm. And in the second book of the Psalms, which I think goes from 42 to 72, um, right around there, almost every Psalm has a heading. And Psalm 43 does not have a heading, which would indicate it also was originally part of Psalm 42. So that's the technical stuff. Now let's get into the, uh, the meat of this matter. Uh, Alec Matir, who's a great commentary, uh, split the Psalm up into th these two Psalms into three parts. And so I think this is helpful. You'll notice the why are you cast down, O my soul, is repeated in verse 5 of 42, 11 of 42, and 5 of 43. Does everybody see that? So that is sort of the, the telltale sign that we're at the end of each of the three sections, okay? So every time he says, why are you cast down, we're reaching the end of a small section, and there's three endings, three sections, which are very clear in the division there. So... Alec Matir splits it up with that verse division, and he says this, verses 1 through 5 of Psalm 42 are the lost past, the lost past. Verses 6 through 11 of Psalm 42 are the troubled present, the troubled present. And all of Psalm 43 is the expected future. So again, the first Five verses of 42 is the lost past. Verses 6 through 11 are the troubled present. And Psalm 43 is the expected future. And you'll see that verse division isn't perfect, but it really does get at the gist of each section. So I think that's helpful. The lost past, the troubled present, and the expected future. And I'm titling this message, When God Feels Far Away when God feels far away. Uh, I don't know about you, but when you talk to any Christians, seems like our constant struggle is what we would call spiritual dryness. I mean, you could talk to a high school student who's a believer. You could talk to someone in their 70s or 80s. They will tell you probably that the most common struggle of the Christian life is spiritual dryness. It's just a continual battle day in and day out. And this is not written by David. It's written by the sons of Korah. These were, if you remember, the better to be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. Th th these are the sons of Korah. These people were, were uh, helped sing in the temple. They would play instruments. Uh, they would help with corporate worship. And uh, this particular son of Korah uh, is far away from home and in distress and depression and feels like God is very distant from where he is. Um, look with me first at verse 6, if you will, of chapter 42, just to give you geographically where he is at this moment. He says in verse 6, My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and from Hermon, from Mount Mizar. 
Now, I don't know if you'll be able to see a map on here. So this is just a classic little Bible map from the back of your Bible. So just remember, this is the Dead Sea, and you got the Jordan River running right here, and then you got the Sea of Galilee where Jesus walked on water. Okay, now Jerusalem, I can't even see this thing. Jerusalem is down here, okay? The, the, the temple is down here, Jerusalem. This psalmist is up here at Mount Carmel. Okay, he's way north of the temple, and he's far away from home, and he's longing to be back home here uh, in the temple, just to give you a sense of the geography. He may have been deported in exile. He may have been taken by uh, a foreign army uh, into exile, or we're not sure why he's up north, but he's far away from the temple, and Wow, how, how fitting is this? I, I know we're not living in the temple era of history where God dwells in a physical building. We are the temple of God. I know that's true. But how fitting, because he is longing to be back with the people of God in the temple in corporate worship. That's, that's the big longing in part of these Psalms is, I wish I could be home again with the people of God, singing God's praise in his house with God's people. And he desperately misses that. And so this is incredibly relevant to our sort of strange situation being uh, far from the local gathered body. So let's listen to this psalmist as he describes his inner anguish and his starvation really for God. So we're looking at the lost past. Look with me here, verses one and two. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Now, I, you know, you may grow up kind of with a, maybe a, you got a cross-stitched image of a deer sort of gently lapping the water with this verse sort of right there next to it. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is not about Bambi sitting next to the river kind of taking a nice little drink of water. That's not what's going on in this verse. Uh, this is a deer. Uh, not made for the wilderness, really, who is dying of dehydration. That word pant, the Hebrew word for pant, is only used one other time in the entire Bible. You Don't turn there, it'll take too long, but in Joel chapter 1, listen to the only other use of this word pant. Joel 1, 19 and 20, this is what Joel says. To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Now, does that give a more accurate depiction? This is devastation. This is a wilderness where there is no water to be found. This is an arid climate. It hasn't rained recently, and there all the natural supply of water has dried up. And this is a deer, not, not like a camel that could survive longer in the wilderness. This is a deer who cannot survive a long period of time. And the deer is panting. It is dying of dehydration. And this deer will soon die if it does not find a source of water to slake its thirst and to satisfy its desperate need. And the psalmist says what any born-again person says. God, there are a lot of things I can live without but I cannot live for a long period of time without you. You are as important to my soul as water is to my body. Now, we, we can even live for a period of days without food, but you cannot live long 
without water. I saw a survival story of a woman who was hiking alone and she fell and she was pinned uh, under a rock and she had broke, well, she, she wasn't pinned, she fell and she broke her leg and was in horrible pain and could not move at all. She was in the middle of nowhere and no one actually really knew exactly where she was. And she had no way to contact anyone. And all she had was a bottle of water, one bottle of water. And search and rescue did not come to look for her for several days. And so for about five, six, seven days, I don't remember the exact length, she was trying to survive off of about this much water. And this is about what she had to survive. And she rationed it out by sips and she drunk it slowly. And then when the water ran out, she knew that she had a period of very short hours before she would die and a helicopter appeared, saw her, rescued her, and she is alive today. Well, this is the psalmist. I need God as much as my body craves water in a dry and weary land. Just to point out some things here, when a deer finds water, the deer is honoring, glorifying that water as a source of life but the deer is not contributing to that water. The water is contributing to the deer. When, when we come to God, we don't so much give to God as we receive from God life and forgiveness, joy and peace. And in receiving life from God, we glorify and honor him as all sufficient. Look at verse three, as he describes these past days and, and weeks. My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? He's at a point where he's lost even his physical appetite. His only food right now are his own tears, whether it's morning, afternoon, or, or in the middle of the night, he is on the verge of crying all the time. He's just on the verge of tears all the time. Maybe you have been there. There are times in life that are particularly hard. Uh, it might be suffering physical or emotional pain or loss. It could be spiritual absence. But th there are times that we go through where emotionally we're very tender and sensitive and almost anything can sort of just set you off. You know, something small happens and suddenly you, you, you're in tears. You're, you feel like you just can't handle much in terms of emotional um, difficulty. And the psalmist is just, his only food are his tears day and night, and he's being mocked by others. Look at verse four. He looks back at the past. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad, with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. He looks back with longing when he was back in Jerusalem at the temple, worshiping God together corporately. And this verse is particularly fitting for us. I mean, we are so thankful for the Websters who are helping us with the lyrics and with the singing on Sundays on here. And I am grateful for the ability on Zoom to sort of have a mock imitation of corporate worship. But as good a gift as this is, we all know that this is no substitute. This is no replacement for actually being in uh, together as God's church and singing together God's praises. And we think back to times in the past where we've been deeply stirred and reminded of truth while singing together corporately. And we desire that. 
Uh, how could you not desire that? How could you not long for hearing everyone's voices uh, as we sing together uh, as God's people? And he looks back on that and says, I haven't had that in a long time. And we can say the same thing. I, I haven't had that. I, I long for it, but, but I, I miss it, and I haven't experienced it in quite some time. Now, I'm going to come back to these verse 5, these end verses on each section. I'll come back to those later. But look with me at verse 6. <clears throat> My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Now, I want to zero in on verses 7 and 8 for a moment here. Here, the psalmist is speaking of the troubled present, what is going on right here and now. And 7 and 8, last night it really hit me how incredible they are because they, they don't seem like they go together, but they do. Let's look first at verse 7. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Number one, what is the imagery here? The imagery is of the psalmist perhaps at the bottom of two large waterfalls that are colliding and coming together into deep waters, and it's this roaring sound. Some of you have been to you know, either Niagara Falls or some large waterfall, and it's this overwhelming sound. And he has this, this almost terrifying sense of these waters coming over him and the deep waters around him. God's breakers and waves are coming over his head. He feels like he's about to go under. He's gasping for air as the waves come over him one after another. By the way, Jonah quoted this verse while in the waters. When Jonah is cast into the waters in Jonah chapter 2, he starts quoting all kinds of references from the Psalms, and this is one of them. Let me just read it so you don't, you don't have to turn there. When Jonah is under the water, um, he's getting pulled down into the depths. He, he says this, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. There it is. Then I said, I am driven from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. So th this is the picture of a man or a woman, you could apply this to any of us, is a picture of a man who is in a desperate state. And here's the thing, as he feels like he is drowning, he can barely get enough oxygen in his lungs as the waves come over his head. He knows that ultimately behind his enemies and behind his difficulty lies a sovereign God. Because he doesn't say my enemy's waves sweep over me. He says, God, your, waterfall, your waterfalls are roaring all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. So he sees behind his difficulty, behind his enemies in verse three, behind all this challenging situation, he sees a sovereign God. And behind these waves, he sees them as being God's very waves. Now that might sound discouraging, but look at verse eight. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love and at night his song is with me a prayer to the God of my life. Now think, think with Jonah. Was God responsible ultimately for Jonah, the storm that came for Jonah? Yes, he was. Did God appoint the fish to swallow him? Yes. 
God was sovereign over the waves that swept over Jonah, just as he's sovereign over these waves. And the Lord is sovereign even over the waves that sweep over us. One of those waves is the lack of corporate worship. Uh, although this is not obviously the ideal, God is sovereign behind all this, the coronavirus and all these things, all these challenges. There is a sovereign God reigning in heaven behind all these billows and waves that sweep over us. But that does not leave the psalmist hopeless. He says the Lord commands his steadfast love. This is the picture of a leader of an army, a general perhaps, commanding troops. The Lord commands his steadfast covenant faithfulness towards you. The Lord, the same God who's sovereign over the waves is also sovereign over his love. And the psalmist sees God being both. So, so think about this. God is sovereign over our trials, and he's also loving us in those trials. So as God's billows and waves sweep over our head, the psalmist knows that God is loving us in the midst of that trial. It's not just that the waves come from a powerful God who hates us and despises us. No, the waves, the trials of life come from a sovereign God who at the same time is commanding his steadfast love for us. So that God is sovereign and loving towards his people. And those two truths must be held on to while we go through difficulty. Because the difficulty is not pointless. It's not arbitrary. It is not without purpose. God has a purpose for the, the waves that sweep over us, and it is a good purpose because God is commanding his love over us as the waves are present in our lives. And the waves will not get the last word in the story of any believer. Look with me at verse 9 and 10. He talks about his present enemies. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning? because of the oppression of the enemy. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? So again, behind the enemies, he sees a sovereign God of love and that helps him endure. Verse 11, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. All right, now the third section, the expected future. We looked at the lost past, the troubled present, now the expected future. Look with me at 43, verse 1. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning? because of the oppression of the enemy. Now, this is a common theme in the Psalms, but that righteous men and women will have enemies in this life. Nobody likes to think about this. Of course not. Why would anyone want to think about this? And yet, we, we must think about this. Um, the, the psalmist knows that anyone who desires to live faithfully for God is going to receive mockery, and unjust criticism for their Christian life. And again, some of us, this is going to hit very close to home. It might be within our very family. It might be amongst coworkers. It might even be roommates. 
It might be acquaintances or strangers, someone on, online or on social media. But even if we are humble, gracious, joyful, others-centered Christians like Jesus, we are still guaranteed that we will be persecuted for our faith. And um, we should not be surprised by that. Um, I do not wish the culture to go the direction that it is going in so many ways, and none of us do. But if there comes a day within our lifetimes where Christians receive outright legal persecution and prosecution for their own faith in the Lord Jesus, while it is not to be desired, it should also not seem surprising to us. First, Peter says, why are we surprised when, when the world persecutes us and when fiery trials come upon us? This psalmist appears to be living faithfully. There's no mention of his sin here. And yet he receives taunts. He has ungodly, deceitful, unjust enemies attacking him. And he has to turn to the Lord in the midst of his grief. Now look at this last section here, verses 3 to 5. He says, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Just stop there. I wonder, I think uh, Piper mentioned this, light and truth may go together because truth is light. I mean, to see what's really in front of you, you need light. And the way we see reality is with God's truth, which is the light. And so he says, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God my God. I saw two commentators mentioned a progression here in verses three and four. First, it's bring me to your holy hill, and then it's bring me to your dwelling. That would be the temple, right? So you got the hill of Zion, and then you've got more specifically, more narrowly, the temple the dwelling, and then you've got the altar, more specific even, even than that, and then you have the ultimate goal. The, the ultimate goal is not the hill, it's not the temple, it's not even the altar. The ultimate goal is God himself. Uh, I want to go to the hill, the dwelling, the altar. Okay, I want to go to God, my exceeding joy, and I want to praise you with the lyre. Oh God, my God. So the, the ultimate end point for the psalmist is being in God's presence, praising God with great joy, and experiencing the satisfaction of knowing him. But now I want to take a couple minutes and uh, express something that's just so significant to, this, to these psalms. Look again at 42.5, this repeating phrase. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And you'll see virtually word for word, that statement is made three different times, right? So we have talked about this a couple years ago, and I, I want to bring this up again because I think it is so relevant here in this psalm. Okay, four steps that we sort of see going on in this psalm, and I'm trying to make this a way that you can remember it. Um, are you ready for the, the, the little saying here? Here you go. Don't bottle or follow. Do pour and preach. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. Don't bottle or follow. Do pour and preach. Now, I'm getting this from a conglomeration of different sources, but 
uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones is certainly probably the primary source on this. I am sure that you've heard us quote his book, Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cures. I have like a 1960s copy of it right here from my uncle. So here, here you go. It's original. And um, in this book, Lloyd-Jones starts, his first sermon is on this psalm, Psalm 42. And um, he has a famous section. I won't read it. I'll just sort of paraphrase. And you've heard us quote it before. But Lloyd-Jones says, um, have you realized that much of our unhappiness in life comes from the fact that we are listening to ourselves rather than talking to ourselves? And he says, do I, am I trying to sound deliberately confusing? He says, no. When you wake up in the morning, someone is talking. Who is talking? He said, well, you're talking, right? It's, it's your soul. Yourself is, is bringing thoughts to mind. Can we admit the thoughts that come to mind as we're getting up and getting going are usually not happy thoughts. They're usually discouraging. They're usually anxious. They're usually depressing. Oh, no, I forgot I have a meeting. Oh, I forgot to do this assignment. Oh, I forgot to respond to this email. Oh, I forgot to answer this text message. Oh, no, I've got to do this thing. I hadn't. I mean, what did this person mean the other day when they said this to me? Were they trying to criticize me? I mean, we have all these thoughts swirling through our head. Well, who's talking? Uh, our self is talking, right? We have all these thoughts. And much of our happiness and unhappiness in life, I want to be careful, it's not necessarily just due to our circumstances. It is due to our interpretation of our circumstances. Does that make sense? So something happens, and then what happens? We start replaying it in our head. We start playing out different scenarios. And what starts happening is our anxiety starts going up. Our fear starts going up. Our discouragement starts going up. Why? Because we are letting our flesh just sort of interpret and, and, and explain to us our circumstances. And guess what? We do a really bad job interpreting our circumstances left to ourselves. And so here are the four steps. Don't bottle or follow. Do pour and preach. So number one, don't bottle your feelings. Okay, so notice here, the psalmist is not bottling up his discouragement. His fear, his depression, he is not bottling it up. Okay, so, um, you, you know, you could have, uh, you've heard of stoicism. The stoical kind of view of life is to sort of act like you don't have emotions. You don't have feelings. Just kind of bottle it up, suppress your emotions. And I don't know if you guys rem remember like CO2 canisters. But uh, if you bottle up things long enough, what eventually happens is kind of terrifying because eventually you have an explosion. And maybe this has happened to you. Maybe you've done this. You know, th there's been something annoying you from maybe a roommate or a friend or something. You've been annoyed, but you haven't said anything. You just sort of bottled it up. You acted like nothing's happening. Maybe it's the dishes. Maybe it's something they didn't clean up. And I don't know. And you just sort of act like it's fine. And you just sort of bottle it up. And maybe you're like a really good bottler ladies and gentlemen, maybe you're really good. And so you bottle this thing up for not a week, not even a month. You bottle this thing up for three months and you don't say a word. And then one Tuesday afternoon around 4.30, there's like something's out of place. And what happens? You become Mount Vesuvius, ladies and gentlemen. You, you become an exploding volcano and people will be hurt and injured in your wake, okay? You, you just suddenly unload on people. Why do you always do this? Why do you never clean up? Blah, 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 blah. Okay, I, I know that would never happen to you guys, but I've been there, okay? I've been there. So, uh, so you, you have these moments where you just suddenly lose it. And you're like, what, what just happened? Well, what you did was something the psalmist does not do. 
you bottled your feelings and that does not make them go away. It simply lets them fester in the dark and then one day they just come rampaging out and people are sinned against pretty brutally. So don't bottle your feelings. Number two, don't follow your feelings. Don't follow your feelings. The psalmist does not say, I'm depressed and that's fantastic. I'm just going to be living as a complete depressed failure. I'm just going to sit here and just own it. I'm just going to live in it. I'm just going to follow my feelings and my heart wherever it leads. And I'm just going to live in this emotion. No. If you have a feeling of pride, you don't just follow it. If you have a feeling of discouragement, you don't just live in it and soak in it. No. You don't bottle your feelings. That's bad. You don't follow your feelings. You'll just follow your sin. So what does the psalmist do with his discouragement and his sense of despair? What you should do is you should pour out your feelings and you should preach to your feelings. You should pour out your feelings and you should preach to your feelings. Now, in case you think this is just being made up out of nowhere, look at verse 4 of chapter 42. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. That is a favorite phrase of the psalmist. Uh, if you've just read through the Psalms recently, pouring out your soul. So again, I use my old illustration. Imagine that this is just dirty, filthy water right here. Imagine this water bottle is full of dirty, filthy, nasty water. It's just poisonous stuff. And if I drank it, I would, I would be in big trouble, okay? Now, um, what does the psalmist do? He doesn't bottle it up. He doesn't follow it. What does he do? He takes the lid off of his soul. And he turns, the, he turns the bottle over and he pours out his discouragement and his fear and his anxiety. He just pours it all out. Where? He pours it out before the Lord. And I know I talk about this a lot, but I'm just telling you that this is a huge, huge thing in the Bible and especially in the Psalms that we must, all of us, we, I must get better at. We have to get better at how to do this. We don't bottle our feelings. We don't follow our feelings. We do pour out our feelings. Okay, what this means is we say things to God that are very honest. Not, we're not irreverent. We don't blaspheme God. We don't curse God and die. That's not what we're doing. But we do pour out honestly our feelings before the Lord. Um, so what, what does this look like? I mean, he says things like, God, why have you forgotten me in 42.9? I mean, do you ever pray like this? God, it feels like you have forgotten me right now. Lord, it doesn't feel like Romans 8.28 is true right now. I'm having a very hard time believing this is working for my good. This feels like a poisonous, horrific event I don't see how you could possibly be using this for my good. Do we have a place where we can pour that out before the Lord in reverence and respect, but as a child to his father saying, God, I feel like you don't care right now. I feel like you've forgotten me, according to the psalmist. He says things that sound sort of shocking to us. He says, you know, God, where are you? Why do I go about mourning? Why do I have these enemies? God, chapter 43, verse 2, why have you rejected me? I mean, these are very intense things to say. Do you know how to not bottle, not follow, but pour out your feelings before the Lord and say, Lord, this is how I feel right now. I know it's not true in my head, 
but I feel like you've forgotten me. I feel like you've forsaken me. I've got enemies. I don't know why you've let me have enemies. I don't know why your breakers and billows and waves are falling over my head. I can barely get enough breath to stay up. Lord, please help me. So we don't bottle, we don't follow. We pour out our emotions, our anxieties, our fears, our complaints before the Lord in a respectful but honest way. And finally, we preach to our feelings. We don't just pour it out and stop. We pour them out and then we preach back truth to our feelings. Back to the illustration, if this was dirty water, the first thing I do is I pour it out safely in God's presence. I say, God, this is what I'm struggling with. These are my anxieties. I did not expect at this point in my life to have this trial, but Lord, this one's really making me struggle. Help me. And then after praying our emotions, pouring them out, the psalmist then begins to refill his heart, his soul, with the pure truth of God's word. He starts to refill. He starts to preach to himself the true, pure uh, hope and truth of God. So look with me again, uh, 42.11. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Now, let me ask you something. Does the psalmist just do that one time and everything is fixed? No, he does that once, twice, three times. Why are you cast down? Hope in God. I will yet pray. He has to do it three different times. And at the end, I'm still not sure everything is great in his soul. I think he's still fighting. He's still struggling. He's still saying, why are you cast down when 43 ends? So this is not a one-time magical formula. This is an ongoing pattern for the Christian life. We are continually not bottling and not following our feelings. We should be daily pouring out our, our sins, our struggles, our emotions before the Lord, and then preaching truth back to ourselves. We, we got to take ourselves uh, and say to ourselves, listen, why are you complaining about this? I mean, look at your life. God has given you X number of years to live. He's regenerated your heart. He's forgiven your sins. He's given you this, 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 and this, all these blessings. The Lord loves you. He cares about you. He knows, and the Lord is with you. And we do that over and over and over and over again. Now, I want to close with this thought. And this was new to me. I don't think I knew this until, until uh, very recently. Several people pointed out how close the words are to something Jesus said. And I did not realize that in the Greek translation, it's the same word. I did not know that. I'll t I don't know. I mean, I'll just tell you the word just because it's cool to know this word. The word is something like perilupos. Perilupos is the Greek word for cast down. When it's translated into Greek, perilupos, cast down, depressed, um, uh, weighed down. That word that gets used three times, actually, uh, yeah, three times in, this, in these Psalms. Why are you cast down, O my soul? That word in the Greek is the same word in both Matthew and Mark that Jesus uses in the Garden of Gethsemane. And a lot of people think he's referencing these verses in Gethsemane when he says, my soul is downcast. My soul is greatly troubled, distressed. It's the same word, perilupos, the exact same word used here. So when the psalmist says, my soul is cast down within me, how much more so was this true of Jesus who said, "Why my soul is downcast to the point of death. I am in, I am in the point of near death through my 
weight of grief. And so when we are going through our dark night of the soul, we can look to the Lord Jesus who didn't just feel like God had forgotten him, but experienced the real abandonment of God on the cross as he stood in the place of sinners. And so we have the Lord Jesus in our moment of grief. I mean, what the sons of Korah had, what King David had was good when they thought about God in their grief. But on this side of the cross, we have something far beyond what the psalmist had to work with as a resource, the Lord Jesus himself, who himself said he was cast down. He was under that great weight and pressure and sorrow in Gethsemane. And yet he did that for us, taking the ultimate depression, the ultimate dark night of the soul was taken by Jesus so that in eternity, we will never have to face that kind of depression. So let's pray briefly and then we will sing again. Uh, Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the honesty of the Psalms. They pray things that we would sometimes be scared to pray out loud in church. Why have you abandoned me? God, where are you? Have you forgotten me? Lord, how long, how long, O oh Lord, will your anger burn against the sheep of your pasture? How long, O oh Lord, will I be stuck down in the mire? Or will your waves wash over me? God, help us to learn not to, to suppress and bottle our emotions, not to follow our emotions. Teach us to pour out our struggles and our fears before you, and then teach us to preach to our own soul. Help us to say, why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my salvation and my God. And Lord, I pray as we sing, singing is another way that we preach to ourselves corporately. As we remind ourselves through song of the truths that we believe, Lord, I pray even now as we sing that you would refresh and restore our soul. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 142. As you're turning here, the uh, reason I picked this psalm to close is because it has a very similar pattern of starting with discouragement pouring out the heart, and then seeing a very strong change in his perspective. This was also, this is written by David when he was in the cave, perhaps the same cave that we looked at a few weeks ago, Psalm 34, uh, after he, you know, was being chased by Saul, and he's all alone. So Psalm 142, uh, before we pray, seven verses long. Psalm 142, a mass skill of David when he was in the cave, a prayer. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see there is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains for me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers were reminded of this psalm, 
David is likely alone here in this cave, in despair, perhaps, discouraged, depressed, anxious, fearful. The king of Gath might be hunting him down. The king of Israel, Saul, could be, is trying to kill him. He has kings on either side of where he is, who both perhaps could be a threat to him. David is alone and isolated. His family perhaps has not even arrived yet, if he wrote this early in that experience. And what does David do? David pours out his complaint before you. He tells his trouble before you. He tells you that no one takes notice of him. He has no refuge. No one cares. He pours out his trouble very honestly. And then he starts to preach truth to himself. He says, Lord, you are my refuge. You are my portion in the land of the living. And then he's able to look and say, you will deal bountifully with me. We see David's perspective dramatically change in these short verses. So Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pour out our complaint before you, to tell our trouble to you. Teach us to preach truth back to ourselves, as David did here, as the sons of Korah did. And Lord, I pray that over time you would begin to revive our soul and bring that water of life back to our parched hearts, that we could taste and see that you are good. And Lord, again, we, we thank you for this day where we get to, some of us perhaps spend time physically or online with our parents, with family and friends. Um, Lord, uh, this day can also be a day of grief in many, in many ways. There are many aspects of joy and many aspects of grief to this Mother's Day. And Lord, I pray that if we are experiencing any of those griefs of Mother's Day that come in many forms, that you would also uh, allow us to come before you with our complaint and to pour it and lay it before you, Lord. And I pray you would meet us there. Lord, thank you for our mothers. Thank you for all that they are, all that they do. Uh, we owe so much to them, Lord. And I pray that you would bless them today in a special way that you'd be with them, be near them. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.